What up, all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 113 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Matt Kowalik. Matt is originally from Detroit, Michigan. He moved to China 13 years ago and has been navigating the various business scenes in China over the last 13 years and has become quite proficient at it. Matt helps companies navigate the different opportunities that companies have to either have things manufactured in China or capitalize on the consumer market in China. He's a really cool dude, somebody I learned a lot from during my time in Chiang Mai. He's a mover. He's a shaker. He's got some great ideas, some angles that um, he's making some big plays on, and I'm really happy to see how everything unfolds for him. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone right now and hit the subscribe button. If you like the message of Misfits and Rejects, it helps me tremendously if you rate and comment on these episodes. So after you listen to the episode, if you like it, you know, give it a rating on the podcast player you're listening to it on and give it a comment. That really helps me get my message out there and, and what this whole Misfits and Rejects message is about. You're just trying to inspire people to really think about their life situation and go out there and make a change if they're not happy with it. And these episodes, I hope, are inspiring you to consider doing that for yourself. I want to wish you all a very happy 2019. I hope this next year is full of abundance in whatever endeavors and things you take on throughout the year. And please always feel free to reach out if you have any questions for me or you want to introduce yourself or even have, have yourself or somebody else on the show. I'm always happy to get new leads on really inspirational misfits and rejects out there. So please feel free to reach out. I have my contacts in the links below. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Matt Kowalik. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. Right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I have Matt Kowalik on the show, a gentleman I've met again with many of the other people that have been on the podcast recently for the Get Shit Done Retreat I just completed. It's been a wealth of knowledge for me and just really seeing where people can take their creativity in this online game has been really cool to just hear his story. So I thought I'd bring him on to share some of them. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an amazing experience. You know, I've, I've been coming to Thailand for 10 years. I've never been to Chiang Mai. So no way. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun. I'm always in the islands or the big cities. Uh, and I loved it. I used to go out to kind of these rural areas outside of Bangkok and train Muay Thai for a couple of weeks. And then Thailand to me was sweat and pain and barbecue and <laughs> really, and I didn't know you're into martial arts. Yeah. Well, I just, I picked it up from another DC here, introduced it to me about five, six years ago. So I used to come, you know, the DC, the, the DC Bangkok event used to just be Saturday, Sunday. Then it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now it's literally a whole week. And I used to start, you know, kind of padding my vacations around it. And now literally, I mean, it's funny. I go back to my friends. I'm like, oh, yeah, I usually uh, spend my Octobers in, in Thailand. They're like, who are you? <laughs> I mean, that's a rad life, though, dude, that yeah. you're spending Octobers in Thailand. First for the audience, DC is Dynamic Circle. Dynamite Circle. Dynamite Sorry. Circle. Yeah. Sorry. Dynamite Circle. It's a... um Giant mastermind, I guess, right? How would you describe it? Uh, yeah, so I guess it's it's hard to uh, to kind of it's an online forum, an online community. Um, a couple guys started it uh, seven eight years ago, and like I was telling you earlier, they were the kind of the ones who shepherded me into this community. You know, I was kind of out there doing my thing in China, uh, freaking out, not not knowing what to do. I never really didn't have a ton of direction when I started it, and uh, 
you know, I'm not really sure why I even started it, but, uh, I knew that, you know, that was the way I wanted to go for some reason. And, uh, yeah, I met these guys and <clears throat> on this Island in the, in the Philippines. And that was kind of my introduction to this whole community and, uh, spent as much time as possible with everybody here. And yeah, it's been great to kind of have that, you know, deep five day conference. And then the, uh, the GSD afterwards kind of really focus on it. And now I just kind of feel like you're just kind of stewing in this community and working on it every day. You know, my wife's not here. I'm not doing anything, but working and exercising all day and uh, every day. And, uh, yeah, it feels really good. I got a, a little sprint here before I take off on a pretty important trip. So really trying yeah, to stay focused. Just for a little hint for the audience, um, we're going to have Matt back on the show in the future because what he's taught, the it that he's talking mm-hmm. about is a really cool idea. It's going to be a surprise for all you when it's off the ground because I have no doubt it's going to be successful. <laughs> but uh, it's, again, that creativity, like he's putting these pieces together that – you know, from his past experience, which we'll get into it in business in China, he's taking the skills that he learned from that and applying it into a market that you maybe wouldn't have expected. And now I think it's going to be really cool. So again, it's going to be a secret for now. We're going to talk about it in the next episode or the future episode. So, Sounds good. but, um, you're originally from Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Born and raised, not really traveled from a big family, I understand. Yeah, so my dad's the first of 10. I got 22 cousins on that side of the family, and we all kind of grew up in this big uh, tangled mess of kids. They're some of my, my best friends. And uh, when I go back home, you know, I didn't do a great job of staying in touch with high school friends or college friends. So when I go home, it's usually to, to kind of see my cousins. But yeah, my dad was uh, a public high school teacher in Detroit, and uh, he was very, he's from that city, and his father's from that city, and his father's from that city, even though I have the Polish last name from you know, a couple hundred years ago. But, uh, yeah, I grew up as one of a handful of white kids in, uh, in a predominantly African American school and, uh, in the center of downtown Detroit in the eighties, which was in another interesting place to, uh, to have been. I'll bet. Um, did any of your, like the, the people in your history work in the car industry there? Uh, my dad did a little bit, uh, you know, basically, uh, he was a bit of a, a socialist agitator in the sixties uh, and the seventies, very idealistic. Uh, I, I'm, I've been idealistic as well in the, in the past and maybe idealistic with my ambition. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, funny. I think about that, you know, um, him, you know, as this 18 year old kid talking to these hardened steel workers about Karl Marx and this idea of communal living and sharing. And it's kind of funny, but, um, yeah, I think uh, that hadn't really been, uh, most of my family is kind of all over the place. A lot of educators, a lot of teachers. Interesting. Did you ever think about like going to like Israel and doing the kibbutz thing? Uh, not particularly. No, I don't really know much about it. Okay. Um, um, it's just, yeah, just growing up with a father with those kind of ideologies might have, you know, yeah. you sought out that kind of experience, but you didn't. And no. you went straight to China. Yeah. Can we talk about much. that and, and the motivation behind heading to China? Cause you spent 13 years there. Um, and you literally sound like you didn't have much experience in the world travel wise. And you just went straight to one of the most hardcore places in the yeah, world. Yeah, I guess so. It's funny because now I talk about it, people are like, Oh my God, you must have been so scared. And it's one of these things too. I was talking to somebody else who's uh, been working for a location independent entrepreneur here and talking about, you know, hanging up his own shingle and going on his own. And it's like that scene in, uh, uh, Billy Madison, where the kid's talking about, I can't wait to go to high school. He's like, don't you ever leave this place. <laughs> like, I just think, you know, people don't really realize what it means to be out on your own there and how, uh, how alone and, you know, how difficult it can be. And, uh, so yeah, I think, you know, if I knew what I knew now, I probably wouldn't, I probably would be too scared to do it, but it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I just remember feeling, uh, you know, 
petrified of living my whole life in middle management and some nameless company in, in Michigan and surviving the five months of winter every year. And, you know, you know, the best thing in my life is watching a hockey game and having a beer at the end of the night. And that, that was the scariest thing I could imagine when I was a kid. And that's also one of those situations too, where, uh, be careful what you wish for, cause you might just get it. And, uh, I look back and yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy and definitely a lot of ups and downs, but, um, why China? China? Why did you choose China? Um, I don't know. I was always kind of fascinated, uh, about, you know, the, uh, I'm very susceptible to reverse psychology. I think I'd be in trouble if my wife ever figured that out. But, uh, this idea that one, there was a, a forbidden city that people weren't supposed, nobody was supposed to see. And then this whole, you know, growing up with China and the red scare and people being, you know, China saying, don't come in and Americans saying, oh, that's the enemy. I was just always attracted to that. And I wanted to, I've always been an explorer, I think at heart. And I always wanted to explore things and understand why. Just tell people, you know, kind of like a, an amateur sociologist at, at heart. That's really all I like to do is explore cultures and food and see how people live their daily lives uh, everywhere on the planet. And I find it really interesting. I can imagine you stood out when you landed. I mean, you're what, 6'5", 6'6"? Six, six, yeah, 6'5". Six, yeah, and, big uh, boy. White boy. Just yeah, like white boy. China. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I just applied for this teaching program. I didn't even have a passport at the time. I got bumped uh, the first time because of SARS in uh, 2003. And, uh, so I waited un impatiently, uh, in my terrible job in Western Michigan until I could finally escape. And, uh, yeah, I remember turning around and saying goodbye to my family and jumping on that plane. And I'd never been, uh, I'd only flown to like New York city a couple of times before that and never really flown anywhere else. And, uh, that first long, super long flight and waking up in, uh, in Shenzhen, the city I'd never heard of, of a little town of 12 million people, the other <laughs> side of the planet. And, uh. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, for me, it was this kind of, I guess, like you said, the, the opposite culture as far away from the culture I came from as, as possible. And um, I don't really know why I went there. It wasn't for anything specific. Uh, Did the people pick you up at the airport and take you to a place that yeah, you so was, figured out on your own? No, it was through a university. Uh, I think the University of Memphis or something has this program where they bring American teachers over and criminally underpay them and uh, take the cream off the top, I guess. And uh, I mean, it was great for me. Uh, we had all of our, you know, rooms paid for and everything was dealt with and your visa situation and, uh, you know, taught English and had a salary. And I did that for one year. And after that, I jumped pretty, pretty quick to the private sector and quadrupled my income. <laughs> Is that, but so when you jump from there, cause you also got your master's degree in China. Well, so first, uh, yeah, first I did uh, private lessons for another year after that and then um, started studying. You very quickly realize where I was in China and southern China. I mean, for the most part, everywhere. It's not like um, a lot of other countries that I've been to where you can get by with a little bit of English and people will figure it out. Like if you're in China and you don't speak Chinese, you know, you're not eating. You know, it's very difficult to travel anywhere, very difficult to do anything, you know, and that feeling of kind of being stuck in your room all the time, it, was, it wasn't very much fun. So um, I definitely wanted uh, to learn Chinese. I figured it would be a good skill set to pick up, and it was. Uh, so I did that for a while and then worked um, in some random uh, sourcing jobs for a while and then decided I needed to kind of make a big move. After that, it was like the fourth year or something in there and did my master's degree at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and studied uh, Chinese business law. 
And, At this point, uh, you, you spoke Chinese. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where you're kind of on this slow growth path upward. Um, I probably took a good four or five years of kind of being immersed in the in the culture and the language and hearing it every day. It's not the easiest language to pick up. And were you um, studying every day, like the language, or were you just? That should have been, but okay. yeah. So I did the, the first year uh, I was at Chinese Univer- or, uh, at Shenzhen University. Um, it was more more class lessons, more time in the classroom than um, at university for me. So it was Monday through Friday, eight to noon. Um, so an hour reading, comprehension, listening, speaking, and uh, writing. And I very quickly decided that I would never learn to write Chinese characters. And it was incredibly frustrating. One thing that was the most frustrating was right. So you could have the character right, but your, my professor would be able to see if my stroke order was incorrect, right? If I drew the strokes in the incorrect, uh, 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 whatever, uh, and, uh, yeah, it would be wrong. And I was like, you know what? This is ridiculous. And I don't even write in English anymore. I'm not going to try to figure this out. So I really focused on, on listening and speaking and it's really paid off. So, um, one of my business partners, you know, he studied, um, he studied Mandarin as an undergraduate. And really kind of seeing how that, the difference of, of what that is like. So his vocabulary is a lot deeper than mine, but my Chinese speech is uh, fairly fluent sounding. So sometimes I, you know, pick up an Uber and tell the driver where I am and they'll have talked to me on the phone and they show up and they're like, who's this foreigner? Where's the guy who just called me on the phone? And, uh, yeah, so I always thought that was kind of fun. That's cool. When did you get into like the, uh, manufacturing consulting? That we talked about pre-show. Yeah, so I mean, it was um, it was pretty obvious, you know, that long term, you know, you can get stuck with teaching, right? Golden handcuffs, um, where you know life's pretty easy, but there's a ceiling that's pretty low, right? You're gonna make, you know, I mean, we're making good money, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a year, and spending, you know, you can get by spending a quarter of that and live pretty comfortably, so. Um, but yeah, it was also kind of like, you know, what, what is this leading to? Where am I going with that? And I felt that pressure pretty quick after a couple of years, um, did some studying and went out into kind of looked at, at see these other people doing this kind of manufacturing consulting, you know, basically acting as a, a liaison between, uh, Chinese factories and, um, companies that were sourcing from abroad, physical product brands, and saw that as kind of a way to get my foot in the door, um, with business and I, you know, I studied uh, political science as an undergraduate not anybody in my family is not really too many business guys, uh, people in general in the family. So, um, for me, it was kind of this hybrid, um, learning, uh, experience as well as kind of a way to make some money. But yeah, it was tough because you end up working quite a bit harder than you would as an English teacher and making less money right away. And it was a very merit based, uh, system. And, and a lot of people were kind of trying to get into that. So it was competitive, but yeah, it was good. I've always been really fascinated by this too, because you hear about these people and they're kind of like ghosts to me, mm-hmm. you know, like you got these people manufacturing in China, all these goods that are so cheap to bring and sell in America. And like, but how do they set up those relationships? And I guess that's where you come in, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the relationship aspect is pretty key. You know, um, trying to, you know, I always tell people it's like Goldilocks and the three bears. We're looking at different, these three different aspects of what's the price that you're looking to pay, what's the quality level that you need and how fast do you need it and trying to find a balance between those three. And we'll go out and kind of evaluate the factories and suppliers, talk to them and see about the products they're making, what the prices are, what the quantum quality level is and play matchmaker and kind of stand in the middle and balance that relationship and, um, charge a commission. 
Now, are you flying all over China to investigate these different factories, or is there one location that most of this shit's made? Uh, no, it's pretty all over the place. Because um, you work with what, primarily like clothing companies? Yeah, we work with textile manufacturers, clothing brands, so we were looking to mostly doing like fashion accessories, bags, and like hats. Name and, brands, we know any of them? Uh, we work with American Eagle and uh, Jessica Alba's brand, Honest uh, Company, and um, a couple other smaller brands, but mostly these kind of... We're really good at kind of helping these brands make these these level ups, these step ups, kind of going from a smaller company to medium, and then medium to a large. And um, but yeah, so that's kind of in, you're an inherent uh, your your you know your cost, a straight cost on top of it. So a lot of these companies would eventually kind of try to bring it in house or um, go factory direct as well. So it's kind of this constant uh, cat and mouse game where you're looking for new customers and kind of managing your existing relationships as well. How do they fare though when they take you out of the equation? Um, I mean, some of those customers would end up coming back to us and being our best customers once they figured out how, how difficult it is to kind of go direct. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where you're kind of constantly watching, constantly kind of monitoring these situations. And, you know, at the end of the day, they basically have to d- make a decision about how much responsibility they want to take and, and how much, you know, and, and for some of these companies, it's worth it, right? If, if you're making, you know, $100,000 or something on top of their factory costs, you know, that can really screw up their entire business if they don't have that kind of cost managed a little bit. So this was a company you're working for? This wasn't your own business at this point? Um, when I first started, yeah, I was working for another company doing um, mostly uh, like extreme sports products, skateboards and stuff like that. And um, flat, this is when all the flat brim hats were crazy and everybody was, was rocking snapbacks and it boomed for a little while and then uh, kind of boom and busted a little bit. And that was right when I started to go off on my own, about 2008, 2009, something like that. But in the same kind of field, doing the Similar. same stuff. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, I watched this guy that I worked for, and he kind of was one of these guys who saw it as an opportunity, but he hated being in China. He went to Hong Kong every time he could, uh, and um, didn't speak the language, and wasn't a great kind of cultural negotiator, ambassador. So he really struggled with it, and he. Uh, I watched him kind of drive this company into the ground. And then when he left, all the people that were kind of working there, we all kind of took little chunks of it and ran off and started our own thing. So for me, it was looking at, you know, you have all these other customers that are buying all these other products. Why wouldn't you try to sell them more stuff? You know, because I quickly found out, you know, it's difficult to build that level of trust that you can have somebody trust you to kind of manage their entire supply chain, which is really the... Um, you know, the, the main artery of their business, if they don't have product to sell and if there's major disruptions in that supply chain, then, uh, the brands can die off pretty quick, especially in that kind of streetwear, uh, action sports thing. There's pretty competitive and there's plenty of other companies to kind of fill that void. I mean, it sounds like then if you're a man of your word, you could probably do pretty well in this, or is it not like that? Like, cause you have um, so many variables that are out of your control. Yeah. So it's tough cause you're kind of, it's, it's tough to deal with on both sides, right? I mean, I think that's really the main point of, of kind of where the advantage is, is learning how to maneuver on the ground in China. And, uh, you know, it's just a very different interpretation of how to do business. It's much more relationship based in the U S we put so much faith in contracts and uh, the legal system. And, um, in China, it's a little more kind of, I mean, in both ways, it is more of a, you're a man of your word or a person of your word, I should say. And, um, 
where in the in the West you had that backup of of an agreement, and you know you could theoretically take someone to court, but you know unless you had ten thousand dollars laying around that you didn't really want, it's not really a realistic option. Um, and in China, you know, it's it's different. I always tell people, really, it's like a traceability back to some common relationship, right? So if you know we're from villages that are close to each other and we go way back and somehow your grandmother knows my grandmother you can trace that relationship all the way back so we would be held accountable doing business together because of that implied threat that if you you know screw me over i'm gonna tell my grandmother she's gonna tell your grandmother and it's gonna trickle down through your whole family and you're gonna have this kind of red mark on you and uh yeah it's a different way of kind of thinking about it but um that's really what kind of holds that fabric of, of Chinese society together is that, you know, in China they call it guanxi, which directly translates to relationship, but it means um, all these kind of different things of all different types of relationships. And for me, the, the kind of common relationship is the guanxi, your relationship is based on your, the two of you having a relationship with some third party that kind of acts as a, basically like a mediator, which is also how the Chinese legal system works, right? It's not a lot of hard laws and judge, a judge saying, you're right and you're wrong. It's the judge saying, well, you kind of screwed up and you misled him a little bit here. So I'm going to say it's 25% your fault and 75% his fault. And we're going to split it like that. And, um, so that kind of mediation arbitration, uh, this traditional village elder thing that ruled China for 5,000 years, you know, they've only had really a, a, a written legal system, traditional definition of system since 1975 or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating culture. And again, like I said, you can kind of get lost in, in exploring that. And, you know, you'll you realize you'll always kind of be at some level of it. You'll never kind of get it to the core, but um, it's fascinating. It is. I'd like to go a little deeper with it because it's really interesting to me. Sure. What kind of common things that could you expect walking into like your first encounter with a potential business partner? Uh, you know, basically I always tell people it's kind of like this, you know, we learn very quickly. It's like a scripted thing, almost like a, like a Chinese opera or something like that, where you go in and you have to kind of first you pretend to talk about, you know, meet each other and talk about, you know, mutual interests, even though, you know, you're both there to kind of do business, but you have to do this basic foundational relationship building. And, um, you know, they'll offer you cigarettes and you sit down and have little cups of hot tea, even though you're sweating in some factory in the subtropics and you have to do this dance and, you know, show the respect and show a little bit of cultural understanding. You know, I think, um, you know, the Chinese are quite forgiving and they understand that, you know, people don't necessarily understand their culture to that level. But for us, it was always a good way to kind of flex our understanding was to kind of show, uh, you know, people we understand, um, a bit about how the culture works and how that exchange should go. That's so cool. Yeah. We could talk for hours about that. <laughs> when did, uh, you start getting the itch to like maybe try something new and swing the bat at something else? I mean, I know you said you had a kind of that Philippine, uh, experience where you, your buddies said, like, Hey, check this out. Or how'd, yeah. that, how'd that transition come about? Well, uh, I was working for this guy and, uh, I didn't, you know, feel like he was the most honest guy, but I was still learning enough and it was a comfortable enough existence. Um, not a ton of pressure. Um, I kind of moved into the sales role and, kind of felt like I wasn't getting the commissions and stuff that we had agreed to. And I started going to law school uh, in Hong Kong and I was crossing an international border twice a week to go to school in the evenings. And, um, by land, 
Yeah, I would take the train and hit Hong Kong and get on the high speed rail and go down to Central. So I go from Shenzhen into you know the the heart and center of Hong Kong's financial center twice a week. How long did that take? Two years. Now, how long would the oh, commute take? Oh, hour and twenty minutes okay. one each way. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, you had to go through a border crossing standing, get your visa stamped and get a little, uh, an educational visa. And, uh, it took up half the page in my book. So I could go and get add-ons and add-ons. I still have this, uh, my original passport, but I didn't even make it 10 years before I had to get a new one. Cause they were just like, look, man, we can't, we can't add any more pages to this. <laughs> so, uh, I had to get a new one. So I'm on my second passport already. Um, Wow, dude, that's crazy. So yeah, you got your degree there in Chinese law? Yeah, Chinese business law. So it was an LLM, which is a, like a legal master's, and it's supposed to be um, something that you get after you get a, a JD, a, a legit legal degree, and it's a specialization degree. So I went there and I was like, look, I'm in China. I'm doing business. I really need this. I don't have time to go do all that. And so I managed to kind of talk my way into the program. Uh, but then like two years later, they were like, okay, no more of that. You have to have a JD as a prerequisite to get into this. So I kind of got lucky. Um, yeah, I thought I would be able to, you know, find a good job or something like that. But then the financial tsunami hit and there was a big freezing hire with all the major firms. And I didn't realize at the time, but you know, if you kind of miss your year with law, it's like, uh, like an NBA draft class or something. Like you can't just sit out a year and then come back. Um, you kind of miss your time. So I didn't really push for it too hard anyway. Um, I did an internship with a small law firm and was like, uh, I don't know if I can really want to be in this. I kind of missed the action of being on the ground in China. Plus I thought that that was my big competitive advantage. Um, so yeah, I kept kind of doing that and flailing along and trying to figure it out. I didn't really have like a mentor who was kind of teaching me or anything like that. Um, so I started listening to every podcast. This was like right when podcasting kind of started sprouting up, you know, 2009, something like that, which is hard to believe. It was almost 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, I happened to stumble onto uh, the Tropical MBA and um, Dan and Ian, these guys who run the Dynamite Circle, started and now we hadn't didn't even exist back then. But they had some. It was like two hundred fifty bucks or something for a consulting call. So my partner and I got on the phone with them and talked to them and um, got kind of brought into this whole community. And that yeah, was quite uh, one of the best investments I've, I've ever made. I think just kind of in general. I've heard a lot of people community. say that was the kind of podcast that set them in this direction of trying to become a digital nomad. Can you talk a little bit more about that podcast and the people who started it? Yeah. So, uh, it's these two guys, uh, they were in California kind of doing their own thing and they were working for a pet supply company and, um, they started this podcast and yeah, it was just fascinating. I never heard anybody kind of talk about business in that way of kind of just going out and doing it. And there wasn't really a lot of, there weren't a ton of blogs or anything like that specifically talking about this concept of running, uh, you know, doing digital marketing or e-commerce at that stage was pretty young, pretty new. Um, and how are they experts at it if they run a pet shop? Like, why are they called a tropical MBA? Uh, I wasn't a pet shop. It was like a, an e-commerce store for um, pet products. And uh, one of the guys, Ian, was pretty passionate about cats and uh they were trying to they would take the world by storm by redesigning some cat furniture and found out how difficult it was but um i really enjoyed kind of listening to their journey and they kind of brought me and all these other guys uh tim conley was one of the guys he used to have this podcast called the foolish adventure and uh led to a bunch of other guys james Shramco and all these other guys who kind of 
were kind of, you know, just out there doing their thing. And it's kind of eye opening to me that you didn't have to have somebody show you all the rules and you could kind of figure it out. And I always wanted to have something like that, a brand or something. I always felt like I was a bit of an imposter because I was just uh, doing this factory manufacturing, you know, and I tried as much as I could to kind of make it location independent. And um, it's been a challenge. But uh, yeah, if you can, you know, it's really forced me to kind of be um, doing quite a bit with like dispersed teams and um, hiring remote workers and things like that and remote management, which is a pretty useful skill set these days. Yeah, you're always the one within our groups to like pipe up and say like, "Hey, do this, do that with three up and like," which is great because I mean, it's it's not something that's on a lot of our radars at yeah. this point in the game. But you seem to have a lot of experience with it. Yeah, for me, it's just uh, you know, kind of looking for all these places to kind of leverage, um, you know, finding ways to get help where you need it, and really, you know, I think for me, it's the. the doing less is more right and and by less i mean the scope of what you're trying to do right and if you're trying to try to do everything there's just no way to be really really good at at any one thing when you're trying to do everything and i tell you guys you know i end up uh giving everybody else advice because it's advice that i need to take that i'm not taking so um i'm really usually talking to myself when i give a lot of this advice and it's helpful for me to kind of be in these environments you know because for a long time, you know, even when I was in Shenzhen, there weren't a ton of people running their own thing. There were people doing manufacturing consulting, but um, they were working for large companies and things like that or other brands that kind of positioned them there. And, you know, I was I never was on an expat salary or anything like that. It was always kind of fighting tooth and nail. I always tell people it's funny, these companies that talk about being pre-revenue and one day we'll be profitable. Man, if we weren't profitable every month, it was, uh, it was trouble because, you know, there was nobody to come in and pay salaries and stuff like that. So, so cool, man. What was, when you did finally break free from that, what was your first venture? Um, yeah. So we tried doing some, uh, some e-commerce stuff some Amazon plays, um, did a Kickstarter campaign last year as well. And kind of started getting into that digital marketing. I never really understood much about uh, e-commerce or digital marketing or never really understood why Google was worth a trillion dollars or anything like that. And uh, so I dove into that a couple of years ago and started looking into um, how we could kind of leverage that ability to source from China very kind of close to the, right to the, the factory core. And um, yeah, I kind of realized I wasn't great at, at branding. And so we pivoted again at the beginning of this year and started looking at um, digital marketing into China. You know, China's uh, in 2017 was a, a little over a trillion dollars in, in e-commerce revenue, and uh, it's just a huge, fast-growing uh, marketplace. And really, uh, no matter what uh, things are happening in the world, uh, it's continuing to expand and open up and become more and more of an opportunity for international companies to kind of come in there and um, and try to market to the Chinese and. You know, people kind of have this perception of China of being this cheap place where a lot of fake stuff is 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 made and consumed, and that's not untrue. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that there the brands aren't there serving the community, right? So the the luxury brands went in there because it's the they have the biggest profit margins. It's the easiest for them to figure it out. They can afford to stumble a couple of times, um, and uh, but now it's getting more and more open, more and more, you know sitting on equal footing and you know the, the rules are a little bit different sure but the opportunity is huge and it's continuing to grow and expand and the demand for foreign brands and foreign made products and foreign culture and all these things is, is continuing to expand and, and grow in china um and i think uh it's a huge huge opportunity for a lot of companies 
Yeah, and, and your edge is the fact that you know, like, because they don't have Google there, right? Like, you don't. Like, well, don't it's have, blocked. Yeah, it's blocked. So you have to understand the platforms that they have, and that's your edge because you right. understand the platforms and how to market to the Chinese. Right? Yeah, and, and even if you did understand them, right? I mean, it's not uh, the the biggest difference is that the language is not phonetical, right? It's all based on characters, so um, that's another challenge. And the culture is a little bit different, um, but. The, the real, you know, the reality is that China is quite a bit like the U.S. in a lot of senses, the way that people think, right? I think being part of a, I think China's the number one cult, the most populated country in the world, and the U.S. is number three, right? So um, they have a lot more in common with each other at this kind of baseline of what culture is um, than a lot of other countries, right? Even you would see something like, yeah, maybe... Um, Korea or Japan or something is closer in terms of food and, um, you know, clothes and things like that. But I would argue that the mindset of coming from a gigantic country where uh, you kind of think you're the best and you're the best culture, this cultural superiority and stuff like that, or largest in size or the most important, that's um, there's more similarities between China and the U.S. there than... Um, with some of these smaller countries that have to kind of be scrappy and agile and things like that. You know, China didn't spend the largest economy for 20 of the last 22 centuries. You know, the U.S. dominance in the last 150 years is kind of a blip uh, to them. You know, they've been around forever. It's always been the most populated country in the world and, you know, the longest continuous culture uh, of any country ever, really. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's been interesting and kind of looking, you know, where manufacturing is getting more and more competitive and that advantage is kind of shrinking. I saw somebody come over with the Google Translate app and they just speak into it in English and it pops up in Mandarin. I was like, oh, at that point, I was like, I got to get out. <laughs> this is not, I'm definitely not, one, I'm not going to be able to retire doing this and it's definitely not going to give me my uh, my house and my uh, my boat on the Mediterranean. So I need to find something else if, if that's what I really wanted. So yeah, we kind of pivoted and, and now we're kind of working to help uh, brands assess, understand the markets, uh, find a, an entry point, enter the market, launch and scale up. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, and thank you for articulating that in such an eloquent way, because <laughs> I think a lot of stuff was answered in that um, description. I want to take it to a little personal level, because you mentioned, you know, staying, going to the Caribbean and like, <laughs> you have a Spanish wife, you just got married a year and a half ago or two years ago. Oh, geez, six, seven months ago. Oh, yeah, six, seven February. months ago. Um, who's... Uh, running, help running this uh, dynamite circle. Yeah, she's um, one of the the main uh, kind of community managers, I guess. Right. Um, so she's independent, location independent right. as well. Um, so yeah, what's the game plan, dude? I mean, um, I know you got these big plans, which we'll come back and talk to you guys about in the next month or two. But what's the plan, dude? As far as where you're gonna settle? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, she's kind of more focused on trying to settle than I am. I think uh, for me, if I, if it was up to me, I'd just kind of keep wandering and keep exploring. But uh, you know, eventually I want to settle down and have some kids. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, she's from this beautiful town on the southern coast of Spain there, right in the Mediterranean. And so we're looking at buying a place there, uh, just put a down payment on. So now I'm feeling the pressure. For oh, you that. did? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Well, I won't be ready for a couple of years, so we have a little bit of breathing room. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm a big family guy. Uh, I come from a huge family, and I'm very... Uh, I like her family a lot as well. She's got a, a good-sized family, too, and they're all around there. And I think when you do a lot of these kind of cross-cultural experiences, it can be isolating. So to have people that um, either love you because of who you are or have to love you because of a marriage, uh, you figure it out. And, 
that's one thing I think of being part of this dynamite circle in general I forget about is coming back to a place like this and seeing, walk, you know, sitting down here and watching people come in and recognize you and talk to you and, you know, people that are doing something similar like that, you know, it's, it's much easier to relate to these people that I've talked to four or five times on, uh, you know, on email or messenger than my high school friends because of the similarities of the way that we choose to live our life in this kind of community. You know, there's a much deeper connection and understanding because you've had these kind of communal struggles with being far away from home and living in a different culture and struggles of trying to get a business started and, you know, feeling like uh, this knot in your stomach all the time. Hey. And uh, this kind of pressure to, to kind of deal with all these things. And it's something that a lot of people don't have to deal with. You know, geez, I haven't got a paycheck since must be like 2007, maybe, since I got like a bi-monthly paycheck. And now for me, payday is the worst because I got to write a bunch of checks. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, just kind of having that, this, uh, you, you know, you literally, everybody talks about, you know, tribalism and, and things like that. And that's really what this is, this nomadic tribe where you can go anywhere in the world, any of these big cities, and I can reach out. I stayed with this guy in Belfast. I met him once and I stayed in his apartment for two weeks. He left for a week and just left me the keys to his apartment just because we had this kind of, this group in, in common. And, um, yeah, some of the, the best uh, friendships I have today and deepest relationships are through this community. Yeah, I'm grateful to find you guys. Like I said, I've been looking for you guys for four years, <laughs> dude, and to finally be here and, and really connect in the way I had hoped was just, it's magical. And you're right, that like-mindedness is so powerful and um, inspirational and that creative energy. I mean, just like, you know, we're still meeting, you and I, like almost once a day, twice a day, yeah, talking right. about our ideas. You're giving me great insight into what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm participating no. as much in your your stuff, but it's uh, it's yeah. great, dude. That's yeah, I was I talking do. about, you know, we did this mastermind thing, and uh, on on the day before this this uh, big uh, conference kicks off in Bangkok, where we sit down, this must be, you know, 180 people or something sit in this big ballroom in this hotel. And literally just sit on a big table and go around in a hot seat and somebody talks about their business for 25 minutes and the problems and everybody on the table just kind of tries to work through your problems and your issues. And we sat there all day long, a whole Friday, just kind of masterminding and talking about these problems. And I end up meeting this guy who was in my group. I sat down with, he's like, oh, my dad's involved in this, blah, blah, blah. And I sat down and had lunch with him. And on the Monday afterwards, he's literally a billionaire. He owns Skechers in China. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was one of those things I was talking to some of these other consultants. There's some other people that are kind of on the fringe of the group that, you know, don't necessarily buy into the whole uh, Kumbaya tribal community thing and um, don't necessarily get it to, to the degree that everybody else does. But, you know, it is what it is. You're like any tribe or community. Um, you can have people that are half halfway in, halfway out, and uh, it is one of those things where it is what you make of it. You know, I think a lot of that comes too with like you can't really get good help if you're not honest with your problems. Just like going to a psychologist, right? If you present this um, this facade of what you think, what you want people to think of you, right? Nobody can help you if they don't know what your real problems are. So. I learned that a couple of years ago, you know, the more honest you can be, the better that feedback is. And I love sitting there trying to help other people with issues because I think a lot of these people in this, you know, there's not a huge difference between the people that are here, you know, doing these sprints and trying to work and the people that are sold their business for seven figure exits. You know, there's just uh, you're probably 80% there, you know, there's just some small connections that you need to kind of keep making or a focus that you need to kind of take. And I think that 
trying to find out those missing connections. You know, it's almost like a, like an electrical circuit, right? If you can find the right connection and the whole thing works all of a sudden, then some people are just missing a couple of those little connections and. Yeah, that's been for me for sure. And fuck, we could end on that, dude. Like, that's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful way to end the show. However, I do want okay. to ask the same question I ask everybody. You know, if there's that person listening who connects with your story that really wants to swing the bat, whether it's, you know, business, you know, lifestyle design, living abroad, what would you tell them to maybe inspire them to take that first step, that first scary step that you took when you flew to China? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my wife hates it, uh, but I have this kind of forced uh, shedding of your earthly possessions and I get very Buddhist about it because, you know, you, you do kind of the things you own end up owning you and you want to think that collecting these possessions is bringing you joy and, and, and things like that. But maybe they bring you some convenience or a, 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 a little serotonin hit when you make a purchase and buy something new and unwrap it. But the reality is, is... I know I feel like I own less physical things now than I probably ever have in my life and I'm happier than I you know when I was in Spain for a year I bought a bike and bought a brand new TV and all these things and then uh, yeah it's not the easiest thing to just give all that stuff away but it feels very freeing to give that thing away so I think um, for me if you really really want to kind of try to do something like this trying to get down to that minimum understanding what you really need in life and, and what you really want and, and what you know if you're trying to uh, fill these holes with uh, with products or things, you know, those are, for me, it's not really a long term answer. And I find more more solace in relationships with people that I share community experiences with, and my family, and things like that. And at the end of the day, you know, there's you know, a Lamborghini is only going to make you so happy for so long, and then you're going to want the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And I think trying to be honest with yourself about what you want in life and, and why are you trying to get out of this? What do you dislike about what you're doing? And if you truly want to solve those issues and find out what they are, that can be a, a painful experience for people. But um, to get to the point where you do truly feel free and, and, and unattached to those things and, and choose where you want to invest your time, right? You can always make more money. You can always make more things, but you'll never make any more time than you have right now. Everybody has their their bank of time. We don't know when we're going to die and maybe it's foretold, maybe it's not, but you know, you and I sitting here, you know, we're investing our time in, in doing this and we'll have less than when we started, you know, and it's up to you to decide if this experience is worth that amount of time. Right. And you don't have to make that decision with every single thing in your life, but to be conscious about, uh, you know, it's like a Mario Kart or something, right. The time's always ticking down. And so I think that that makes the most sense is like, uh, you know, when you're on your deathbed, are you going to, are you going to lament having a Toyota Camry over a, a Porsche or, you know, like what's going to matter at the end there and, and, and how do you want to live your life and how do you want to remember your own life and what do you want out of it? Beautifully said, brother. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. <laughs> no problem, you. man. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to get you back on the show to reveal to the audience, you know, the, the deepest, darkest depths of what you're actually creating and how you have chosen to monetize your knowledge of the Chinese market and how to navigate through that market for the benefit of everybody who is interested in capitalizing on it. Please remember to, again, subscribe, rate, comment on Misfits and Rejects. It helps me tremendously in the ratings. I want to wish you a very happy 2019. Let's make it a good one. We only get one shot at this next year, so let's make it as productive and full of fulfillment and whatever that means to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for following me for as long as you have. Those of you who have been around for many years now, Misfits and Rejects going on its fourth year, and I love doing this for you all. I love these stories. They inspire the heck out of me. 
As many of you know who do follow me on Instagram, I'm traveling around the world capturing a lot of these stories and really designing my life in the way that I always want, which is location independent, on the road, traveling, making money online. I have gotten a lot closer over the years. This last month, 2018, December 2018, was probably my best month yet over the last four years I've been trying to do it. You know, I made $1,300 from online surf course sales, which was a huge accomplishment for me. I was really proud of myself and just this network of people that I've surrounded myself with, that Matt Kowalik's involved with, that Will Asano's involved with, have really helped give me perspective, kept me accountable, kind of showed me the way in which I need to continue to cultivate my ideas and get them out there for people to really hear and understand. Ultimately, you could have the best idea, the best product, the best whatever. And if you don't know how to market it, no one's ever going to find out about it. So that's what I've learned for myself this last few months here here in Asia, which is I am an online digital marketer. (laughs) I have a podcast. I have surf courses. I am an online surf coach, but ultimately my business from now and forever, as long as I'm in this online game, is online digital marketer. So very sobering, but a reality. And if you want to play the game, you're going to have to play by certain rules. And rule number one is when you get in this game that you're going to become a very proficient online marketer. So again, thank you for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. I'm really looking forward to 2019 for myself and for all of you. Let's make it a good one. Like I said, we get one shot at this. So best wishes to you. Much love. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it... It's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.